Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and I've got two reviews for you this week. First, a reminder, we're now a member of the Now Playing Network, where you can listen to other great shows like Vinyl Emergency with Jim Hankey, where he features a wide range of guests that discuss vinyl records and the lives of those who create, collect, and commemorate them. You can listen to that on any podcast network, and you can also find it at nowplayingnetwork.net. Without further ado, we'll get right in to the meat of the episode. The first film I want to talk to you about is The Other Fellow from Gravitas Ventures. It stars Gunner James Bond Schaefer, James Alexander Bond, James Bond Jr., Gregory Itzen, Tacey Adams, Charlie Palmer Rothwell, and Chai Jamal McFarlane. It is directed by Matthew Bauer and written by Matthew Bauer and Renee Van Panavis. It runs 80 minutes. It's in English and Swedish. What's it about? This documentary is an energetic exploration of male identity via the lives, personalities, and adventures of a diverse band of men, real men across the globe, all sharing the name James Bond. What's in a name? Well, it turns out if that name is James Bond, a lot. Sometimes it can be a blessing, sometimes it can be a curse. In this cinematic and really lively documentary, Australian director Matthew Bauer allows several men and a kid across the globe who share a name with the world's most famous spy to share their stories of how their identities have been defined by this name and how they've managed the hurdles of being associated with such a specifically defined fictional character, as well as one that brings quite a few negative stereotypes along with him as well. Some of these stories are incredibly fascinating, and there is one that specifically plays out almost like in an individual true crime thriller, and it features a brilliant twist on the use of the iconic name as a means of someone being able to hide from an abusive ex-husband. While many of the men involved lament the public's familiarity with their name and the attention that it brings, this particular example begs the question that perhaps that very same annoyance could in some unique situations be used as a benefit. Another man with the name that we meet is accused of murder. What does it mean to face the charge of killing someone when a character known for the same name as you is known for having a license to kill. And what unique challenges come with being James Bond and also black. Meanwhile, someone else in this person's same town with the same memorable name has to deal with a case of mistaken identity and what that does for his own personal well-being, and livelihood. All of these men, and many more, face very different realities. And Bauer wisely doesn't make any of them the singular star of his show. He keeps the focus on what connects them, their shared experience of being associated with this name. The access they provide gives us a peek at living a life most of us couldn't ever really imagine, and being open about their own internal battles with when to embrace it and 
when to reject the name is deeply humanizing. If anything, one hopes that after seeing this, you might think differently before coming up to someone with a famous name and leading with the same tired joke that they've probably heard a dozen times that day already and every single day of their life. I personally was reminded of how my children's orthodontist is named Jason Bourne. For years, I've poked fun at it so many times, but not until watching this documentary did I ever take a step back and think about what it might be like for him on a daily basis to be called Jason Bourne. And Jason Bourne, while popular, has nowhere near the obsessive global following, history, and baggage that comes with the name James Bond. So it's infinitely worse for the men in this documentary. I love how this project came about very organically, too, with the director initially contacting hundreds of James Bonds online via social media and just asking about their lives. From there, he whittled it down to where we meet around a dozen or so of those in the film. But through these dramatic stories, we learned so much, and we can suppose that the others have had very similar experiences, too. We also get some fun nuggets about the creator of the character, like an interview with Ian Fleming where he is talking about how he came up with the name James Bond. This may be old news for some super fans out there, but for me, it was incredibly interesting and honestly an ethical dilemma all on its own. All things considered, the brisk pace, the glossy presentation of Bauer's storytelling style in which he uses a collection of interviews, superimposed video graphics, and dramatized reenactments, combined with a well-edited balance between sometimes hilarious and sometimes tragic stories, makes for an always engaging, entertaining, and emotionally resonant viewing experience. The other fellow is in select theaters and streaming on demand on February the 17th, and I highly recommend it. I think that this is a really interesting documentary. It's very slice of life-esque. It just takes this one specific small concept and explores it, you know, somewhat in depth, but through these different lenses of people you get a very robust picture of what it might be like to be put in this situation. And again, I love anything that helps generate empathy in a viewer, and I feel like this is something that can do that. And so it's not only entertaining, but it's informative and potentially helpful that make you a better person. So those are the kind of things I like. So I definitely recommend checking out The Other Fellow wherever it is playing near you or, again, from the comfort of your own couch. You can stream it on demand, too. The other film I have for you today is Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania from Marvel and Walt Disney Studios. It stars Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Jonathan Majors, Michelle Pfeiffer, Michael Douglas, Catherine Newton, David Dustmalkian, William Jackson Harper, Katie O'Brien, and Bill Murray. 
It is once again directed by Peyton Reed, as the previous two films were, and it is written by Jeff Loveness. It runs 116 minutes and is rated PG-13 for violence and action and language. What's it about? Scott Lang and Hope Van Dyne, along with Hope's parents, Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne, and Lang's daughter, Cassie, go on a new adventure exploring the quantum realm that pushes their limits and pits them against Kang the Conqueror. I may not understand it very well scientifically, but the subatomic quantum realm is a gorgeous place to spend time in. Really reminded me of Disney's Strange World that released just last fall. The landscape feels like it is ever-changing, though it's always incredibly vibrant. There are so many interesting and highly creative creature and technology designs. There also happen to be a whole lot of sentient beings, ranging from humanoid to robotic to blob-like. When the ant family, which I'm going to lovingly call them probably throughout this, accidentally ends up in the quantum realm and find themselves separated and trying to get back to one another, Scott and Cassie bump into a large group of these alien refugees. And while they are not developed very deeply individually, a few of them are certainly memorable and provide the opportunity for some fun interactions. And who knows, maybe we'll see some of them again one day. This is Marvel and the MCU after all, so I wouldn't put it past them. One potentially divisive choice is that Marvel has stuck with using MODOK as almost entirely comic relief. At one point in the comics, he was definitely looked at as a more serious supervillain threat, but here his appearance is intentionally cringe. When we first meet him, it's honestly a bit jarring and feels off, but the character backstory works well enough that eventually I started seeing him as a hilarious addition anytime he showed up. And his goofy look is a fun contrast to the terrifying, but usually controlled demeanor of the film's other big bad. And about him, eventually all roads lead to Kang. We do get some explanation as to why he's there in the quantum realm and the setup for him as the universe's, oh, excuse me, the multiverse's next Thanos level threat was surprisingly easy to follow. I thought that with all the timey-wimey talk, it might be easy to become confused. I know that in Ant-Man and the Wasp, the second movie in this series, I at times felt a little lost. But this script delivers the information pretty clearly. And what Kang wants is ultimately at odds with what other characters of the Ant family want, leading to a very intriguing ethical dilemma about the value of one's own world versus the value of others. That's an ongoing theme throughout the film, too, with Cassie frequently picking at her dad for not wanting to help others who he doesn't feel directly responsible for or whose plight he doesn't personally see. It's something to consider as the credits begin to roll and will likely continue to wreak havoc on characters emotionally as their choices are bound to have consequences that they wouldn't prefer. Jonathan Majors as Kang is definitely on his game yet again. 
His ascension to megastardom is in full gear now. And with Creed 3 right around the corner, he will be talked about constantly for months. It's with good reason, too, because his performance is wonderful. There are layers to this version of Kang and his reasoning for what he is trying to accomplish. He feels wronged, and he truly believes himself to be doing the multiverse a favor. Again, much like Thanos did. Majors carries that weight so well and is able to masterfully handle the dramatic and the quiet parts of this role with the absurdly powerful once the conqueror side of him comes out. Between what we see here and the information provided in both a mid-credit and a post-credit scene, it's officially official that Kang is going to be a major force to be reckoned with in the MCU's next phase. The other standouts for me have to be Scott and Cassie. Rudd and Newton work so well together, and their relationship is at the center of this whole affair. The reason they get into this in the first place is Cassie's desire to use his technology, I guess it's Hank Pym, her grandfather's technology, for good, despite Scott wanting to hang the suit up. And there's a very natural depiction of parenting fear and doing everything to protect your kid. The family dynamic in general is really what kept me interested. It's light stuff, mostly. Janet has secrets, and her daughter Hope is frustrated that she won't talk about it. Of course, we find out why that is, and it's lovely to see them, and Hank also, positively dealing with this new information about her time in the quantum realm. If anyone gets the shaft the most, it's probably the Wasp for having her name in the title, which I think is silly, honestly, because this is an Ant-Man movie and pretending otherwise is futile. She gets very little to do by comparison. She does feature in a couple of the film's biggest sequences, but she feels so small and honestly like a throw-in, whereas Cassie gets more time to shine, and even Hank has a much more memorable moment as part of the climactic fight. Still, just watching them all interact and seeing parents and children and romantic partners navigating this tricky situation was a welcome return for me. As far as I'm concerned, Marvel's mixture of Journey to the Center of the Earth and Tron Legacy, you'll understand that reference once you see the movie, was a blast. I loved the humor, the heart, thought the action looked great, and I wasn't turned off by the CGI like I have been in many recent MCU entries. It's not in the tier of great Marvel movies, but it's one that I could see myself coming back to again, and I don't often do that. True, part of that is simply because I adore Catherine Newton so much. Seriously, if you haven't seen her in The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, one of my absolute favorite movies from a couple years ago, or Freaky, or Pokemon Detective Pikachu, please get on that right away. She is an incredible actress. I think she's just wonderful, and everything she's done, I've enjoyed immensely. But there's just something so refreshing about the vibe of an Ant-Man movie. Some people really like the vibe of Thor. Thor Ragnarok, and the most recent one, that kind of comedy. But this is my kind of fun, and it helps that the wider picture of where the MCU is heading finally starts to come into focus. 
I'm not ashamed to say that this was an antastic return to form for Marvel after a few lackluster to merely sufficient entries. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania will be in theaters on February the 17th. I am definitely feeling it. I say go see it on a big screen. It looks awesome. Enjoy the heck out of this one. It's a fun, family-friendly adventure that I was very pleasantly surprised by. Well, that's it for this week of FF+. Plus. Hopefully, I've helped you make a decision about what movies you want to see. I always love to hear from you, so seek me out on social media. You can find links to all of my social media accounts and the show's accounts in the show notes of each and every episode. Come join us in the Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group if you want to talk movies each and every day as well. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts with some kind words as well, or drop a five-star review on Spotify. Anything like that helps us out and is always much appreciated. I'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching and keep feeling filmed.